3: A team of five men stride into the Quai Branly, a famous museum in Paris. It is one of the world's largest and most precious collections of objects from Africa. Like everyone else, these gentlemen pay to get in, but they're not happy about that. Each of us had to pay nine euros for a ticket
1: to come in here. Do the math. Over the years, our works of art have generated millions for French, Belgian, English, German, American museums.
3: The Quai Branly is quiet, basked in soft spotlights, filled with priceless objects, some safeguarded by glass cases. These five men are filming themselves the whole time. Their leader, wearing a black beret, speaks into the camera.
1: D'ailleurs, ceci est le symbole même de mon clan et de ma tribu. Je ramène en Afrique tout ce qui a été volé. I am taking this back to Africa. Everything was looted while
3: the blood of Africans was spilled. He bends down in front of an object. I can't see it clearly, but it looks like a carved figure, slim, about four feet long. The leader, the man on camera, grabs its base and starts yanking it, trying to remove it from its mounting. The piece is later identified as a 19th century funerary pole from current day Chad, an object that usually marked the burial sites of important figures. He keeps trying to pry the wooden sculpture loose, but it doesn't budge. After a couple of attempts, one of his friends walks into the frame and lends a hand. It finally gives. The leader cradles the funeral pole in his arms and he heads towards the museum exit, the entire time still talking to the camera. You don't ask a thief permission to take back what he has stolen.
1: I am repossessing this on behalf of all Africans and in the name of all humanity.
3: The video is mesmerising to watch. His boldness is admirable, Technically, of course, he's breaking the law, but I also think he's doing the right thing. The way he flouts not just every single rule we're taught about how to behave in museums, but the law itself. The law with a capital L that allows these artifacts to remain in the West. Security shows up. Let us through, let us through. It is our property. And eventually, so do the police. Hi, I'm Ben Lewis. Welcome to Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world. I've been writing and making films about art for over 20 years. The art world isn't just high culture, big money and creative genius. In this series, we uncover the ugliest crimes, the biggest scandals and the murky in between. And today's story? Well, it's the work of Empire, truly monumental in scale and scope, and it involved the theft of countless artworks. Oh, but don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about our beret-wearing activist, Mwazulu Diabansa, and his very public attempts to highlight the issue of restitution. That is, the call to return African artefacts looted during colonialism. I'm talking about the original sin, about how these artefacts got to the West in the first place, and about why they're still here. It's one of the most topsy-turvy controversies of the art world, where those who take from museums look more like heroes than thieves. I
1: would like the unconditional restitution of our heritage. I would like these things to come home. I would like the European and Western countries, including the United States, to recognize their crimes.
2: There's the question of restitution, but then there's also the question of acquisition. What is it appropriate to still collect?
4: You know, we can't underestimate the imaginative power to invent excuses in defence of colonial loots. That's what's happening uh, here as well.
3: So what should restitution look like? And why are some Western museums so reluctant to return these objects?
5: If black lives matter, which I bet all the museum trustees would pretend today, if black lives matter today, they mattered a century ago. They mattered when they were slaughtered in order to obtain this cultural wealth. For a moment,
1: it was the determination that I felt, the same determination that inhabited my ancestors,
3: defending these artworks with dignity, and many of them were murdered. I'm talking to 42-year-old Mwazulu Diabansa from his home in Paris. He's describing what it felt like in that moment, making his way to the exit with a funeral pole in his arms. And it was a revolt.
1: I will say there was a revolt in me because I felt overwhelmed after all these centuries, after all these decades, when I touched those artworks which were
3: once in Africa. Wazulu has an online business selling electronics and accessories. But right now, he's dedicating his time to the cause. The Congo-born activist is a spokesperson for the pan-African organization Unity, Dignity, Courage. They advocate for African wealth to be returned to Africa. That includes the
1: continent's
3: art. To be clear, Mzulu says his intent is not to actually take or steal the object, but to bring attention to the issue of restitution by filming it all. He calls it active diplomacy.
1: Everyone knows that I, Zulu Diabanza, am not a thief. Everybody knows that. Everyone knows that. I am fighting a peaceful fight for the recovery of our heritage. We wanted, I personally wanted to dare these actions to show European government the way forward. Everything that has been taken by force must be restituted. I also wanted to show the way to African government. And that we shouldn't ask permission. Authorization from a thief to recover what he stole from you.
3: Of all the cases for restitution to African nations, one definitely looms larger than the others. The story of the Benin bronzes.
4: They are among the most technically accomplished and aesthetically
3: awesome artworks Chika Okeke Agulu is a Nigerian-American art historian and a Princeton professor. Uh, Culturally,
4: they have been described by uh, Benin people as their own history text. And so taking them away is almost like looting the library and the archives of the Benin
3: Kingdom. The Benin bronzes are made up of thousands of stunning antiquities, some created from as early as the 16th century. They not only include intricate bronze and brass plaques depicting the ceremonial and political history of the ancient kingdom of Benin, but there are also numerous sculptures, ivory objects and masks, royal regalia and personal ornaments. Today, Anyone in Africa who wants to see the Benin bronzes in any real quantity has to take a long flight to Europe or America where an intensely emotional encounter often awaits them.
4: The first time I saw ancient Benin bronzes was in 1995 at the British British Museum. Museum.
0: Yeah, so the first time I ever even was exposed to artifacts um, from Africa was with my dad. Um, we had gone into the museum and because my dad was a traditional ruler, one, one of the curators in the museum had invited him and a couple of other um, traditional rulers to come in and see some of the crowns and um, other significant pieces um, that you would associate with a traditional ruler.
3: Rayleigh Shinairo is a curator who put together Nigeria's first pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 2017. And you remember art historian Chika Akeke Agulu. I had gone to England
4: that summer for uh, an art residency. And so that was my first opportunity of seeing these objects in their glory.
0: I just, you know, was in awe of how um, intricate they were, of how beautiful they were. Um, And just walking around the museum and understanding that these were were obviously um, created by um, people from where I'm from, it, it put a certain pride in me.
4: But of course, at the same time, it was not without pain. So it's in that sense that I felt, you know, a schizophrenic experience for me and really a feeling of, of um, complete loss of these objects that I had to travel thousands of miles, to encounter them.
0: Why are they here? Like, why, why, why are we not able to experience this at home?
3: Why not
5: Indeed. It seemed as if the ground itself had caught fire and was burning. There was a dim grandeur about it all. And also, there seemed to
3: be a fate. From the diary of a soldier at the Benin raid of 1897. The Benin bronzes are arguably the largest single body of work seized by a colonial power at one time looted during a bloody raid in 1897 by the British. The Benin Kingdom was one of the most powerful empires in West Africa, and it was getting in the way of British commercial domination of the region.
5: I brought the rocket tube into action and sent five 24-pound war rockets setting the houses on fire.
3: From British commissioner Ralph Moore, who'd overseen the 1897 attack. Dozens of villages and towns were razed, the royal palace torched. Machetes and muskets just couldn't compete against the surprise attack of over 5,000 men with rockets and machine guns. No-one knows how many Benin citizens died because unlike the meticulous cataloguing of the bronzes, the British didn't care to count. A powerful empire sacked in a matter of weeks.
5: These were war crimes at the time. They involved a criminal act. Jeffrey Robertson is a human rights lawyer. It was a war crime because the invaders killed people who got in their way and they looted, plundered everything they could lay their hands on. All the stuff of any value found in the king's palace and surrounding houses has been collected. A large quantity of brass castings and carved tusks have been found. Two tusks and two ivory leopards have been reserved for the queen.
3: From the Diary of a British Captain, February 1897. Originally, the Benin artworks decorated the Palace of the Kingdom of Benin, now part of present-day Nigeria. And though artefacts from the Kingdom of Benin still exist in Nigeria, the numbers are nowhere close to how many are scattered across the West. It's usually estimated at around 4,000, but scholars like archaeologist Dan Hicks more than double that number. These objects landed in major museums across the West, or were bought on the legal market and added to the private collections of well-known families like the Lehmans, Rockefellers, Fords and Rothschilds. Even Pablo Picasso purchased a Benin artwork. And though I remember my art history textbook from the 1980s describing African art as, quote-unquote, primitive, a widely accepted art term at the time. It was these pieces in Europe that inspired the artists of revolutionary modernist movements like Expressionism and Cubism. To this day, some of the stolen Benin artworks still show scorch marks from being wrenched from pillars in the Burning Palace. Kareem Maddox, and I've been playing basketball since I was four years old. This year, I'm training for the Tokyo Olympics and wondering what it means to be an Olympian.
2: We didn't want to be used as some sort of political tool.
3: And what the Olympics mean to all of us.
2: If one of us can win a goal, then it will mean a lot to the people all over the world.
3: Because the Olympics have always been about more than just sports.
2: I do
5: think that I achieved my greatness here
3: subscribe to The Greatness with Kareem Maddox. That's me, produced by USG Audio and Transmitter Media. The rulers of the Benin Kingdom have been asking for the return of their bronzes since 1936, not to mention calls for return from the Nigerian government. But when talking about the history of restitution, everyone I spoke to brought up a specific moment that still stings, even decades later. The Festac Fiasco. Festac, or the World Festival of Black and African Arts and Culture, was held in Nigeria in 1977. Art historian Chika Okeke Agulu. This was this incredibly
4: extravagant festival of black peoples across the planet. There has never been anything like it before and after. It was Nigeria's moment of pride, uh, funded by petrodollars Dollars of the
3: 1970s. It was a month-long international celebration of Pan-African art and culture, and like Chica said, a really big deal. Everyone from Stevie Wonder to Sun Ra to Miriam Makeba performed.
4: One of the things that the organizers did, supported by the Nigerian government, was to select the Queen Idia mask, which is this um, carved ivory mask, supposedly representing
3: Queen Idia.
0: Um, my favorite Benin bronze is Queen Idia.
3: Curator Adenrele Shaniro.
0: She was the mother of the upper of Benin um, from about the in the 16th century. She was a very powerful figure.
3: The Queen Idia Mask is considered one of the crowns of the Benin artworks, and it was chosen as the symbol of the festival. So Nigeria asked the British Museum to loan it to them. According to the Nigerian press, the British Museum wanted an impossibly large insurance fee, the equivalent of close to $13 million today. Apparently, the museum said the over 400-year-old object was too fragile to travel. There were calls for boycott of uh, Britain,
4: for cutting diplomatic ties, because this was a huge slap in the face of Nigeria, especially because this was an object, among several others, that um, were stolen by the British.
3: In the end, Nigerian sculptors had to replicate the mask. Imagine... The world has gathered to celebrate African art and culture and the centerpiece representing this incredible moment is a fake.
0: I wasn't born in that time period but I was I have listened to firsthand um stories about this. It, it is painful because you know that 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 is something that was that belongs to you that was created here by by you know people in your you know people that come from where you come from um and understanding that you have no power, no control over
3: it. It's kind of mind-boggling how artworks so clearly documented as a theft get to stay in the West. Boston's Museum of Fine Arts is the perfect case study on how frustrating and arbitrary the current legal landscape is. We reached out to several American museums, but no-one agreed to go on the record. It surprised me how reluctant institutions are to talk publicly about this. That is, except Boston.
2: It's a tricky subject. It's it's a tricky subject. And, uh, you know, it's not one that people have spent years thinking about, um, you know. It, it, a lot of these conversations have developed pretty rapidly over the last two or three years. Uh, my name is Victoria Reid and I am the Curator for Provenance at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So you can think of a provenance as like a biography or a life story of any one of the objects that's in the collection. So my responsibilities include researching and documenting the provenance of the works of art that are in the MFA's collection, as well as researching potential acquisitions and loans, anything coming into the building Um, to ensure that we are not accepting anything known to have been looted or smuggled.
3: In recent years, Boston's MFA received two acquisitions from wealthy collectors that included objects from the Kingdom of Benin, one batch from the Lehman family and another from the Teal family.
5: So if you steal something since 1970, there's a convention that can... uh, bring them back. And a lot of cultural objects uh, are stolen from temples around the world and are intercepted by police and sent back.
3: Human rights lawyer Jeffrey Robertson is referring to the 1970 UNESCO Convention Against the Illicit Trade of Cultural Artifacts. After looking into the provenance of the teal objects from the Kingdom of Benin, Victoria discovered they were looted after the 1970 convention and sold on the legal market. So they were given back to the government
5: of Nigeria. But pre-1970, all the colonial loot that people were killed in order to steal by the armies of the European powers, Uh, ...are not affected.
3: The Lehman bronzes, on the other hand... ...were looted during the 1897 Raid... ...so before the 1970s Convention... ...and also bought on the legal market. And so this time the museum accepted them. Though the Lehman bronzes were before Victoria's time at the museum... ...she says the museum did their legal due diligence...
2: ...and that the gift met their legal standards. It's legal to buy and sell Benin bronzes. um, They've been on the the open market for over 100 years.
3: So the law might be on their side. But what about plain, old-fashioned right and wrong? The Boston MFA is part of a growing body of museums... ...that at least acknowledges in their public displays... ...the sordid past of the Benin objects even if tentatively and too diplomatically for my tastes.
2: Again, it's incremental. We are working to the extent that we can to develop this language, keeping in mind that many of these objects are still privately held and privately owned and do not belong to us. So
3: So you've got to be careful, you've got to be careful in case you antagonize the owners.
2: We, um, we are certainly very, of course, grateful to the owners who, who have lent them and who have promised them to us. And we want to um, be respectful of that as well. So it is a bit of a balancing act.
4: As much as one would say good for them that they have made the effort to account for this history of how the objects got to their museum, that definitely can and could raise questions on the part of visitors in terms of well so what are they still doing here if you know that they were stolen and then resold
3: what are you doing about it i agree with chica of course the virtue of his arguments are undeniable but i also have a smidgen of sympathy for victoria and museum curators like her first because it was definitely brave to come onto my podcast and speak as honestly as she did and secondly, because these curators are in a difficult position, acknowledging the sketchy history of their objects while not wanting to put off future donors. No museum curator or director I know ever advanced their career by alienating important collectors or turning down the offer of a significant addition to their collection or by giving away their prized possessions. But, here's where the limits of my sympathy rub up against the reality of the museum's next move.
2: So, we were well aware when we were approached, when the museum was approached at the time, that the Binan bronzes were controversial.
3: When the museum got the Lehman acquisition, the director of Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments, Yusuf Abdallah Usman, wrote a letter to the Boston MFA asking for the return of the Benin artworks to Nigeria. He was quoted all over the media too, saying, ''Give them back!'' About a year later, the museum opened a special gallery for the bronzes and announced that the Oba of Benin had given his approval. So now, there were two different claimants for the Lehman bronzes, the Nigerian government versus the Oba of Benin
2: so this is this is another complication in this story is that you know, I suppose there are really two sort of potential claimants to this group of objects. There is the royal family of Benin, there's the Oba, and then there is the government of Nigeria. Uh, they are not the same thing. Um, we had elected to reach out to the OBA in advance of the gallery opening. Um, and we are not really in a position to sort of adjudicate um, a claim like this. In, In other words, to decide whose claim is stronger, the government of Nigeria or the Oba of Benin.
3: Lucky for the museum, a member of one of their committees is a descendant of the Oba who ruled the Benin Kingdom in the 19th century. According to the museum, this member approached the Oba at the time about the Lehman acquisition. Victoria told us they felt letting the Oba know was important, considering how these Benin artworks were acquired. Now, this looks good, but I have to wonder, was it an ethical move or a PR one? Because it seems that after the Nigerian government demanded the bronzes back, the museum was very proactive in trying to justify keeping its bequest, or what I'm tempted to call its loot.
2: Um, so, I understand that Nigeria is asking for many of these objects back, um, but we did not feel that, at least from the position of a legal claim, the government of Nigeria um, had much standing to ask for their return. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm out a little over my skis here. but. Um, you know the government of nigeria certainly didn't exist in 1897. Uh, nigeria didn't gain independence until 1960. Um, the benin bronzes were taken from the oba and not from the government of nigeria
3: and so there is now a special gallery at the boston museum of fine arts for their fabulous collection of benin bronzes
2: and i'm not normally swayed by the argument that we are taking something out of someone's living room and putting it on public view. That's not normally a reason that we would um, accept something. However, in this case, it's literally true (laughs) that this collection had been in someone's private home and was not accessible to the public at all. Obviously, I work for a museum. I believe in the mission of museums and I do think it's better when works of art of this this quality can be appreciated by everyone rather than, than just one or two people.
3: The idea of the Universal Museum, that these objects are better off in safe museums in the West where anyone can see them, is one of the arguments Chica hears a lot. But he doesn't buy it, and he doesn't want you to either. I cannot imagine um, a
4: Nigerian student or scholar going to the American embassy in Lagos to ask for a visa to go to the MFA Boston to see Benin bronzes. They would think that this person must have gone crazy. You want to go to the United States just to see a work of art? When my own mother in the day could not get a visa to come to see my first child. She could not be given a visa for that. Not to talk of someone coming to see art. And so this idea that These are universal museums. They are universal museums for people who have passports that can travel. Meaning, you know, Europeans and Americans doing their cousinly travel from across the Atlantic. Africans don't get visas to come see art exhibitions. Pure and simple. And that makes my point about the fact that there will always be some, quote-unquote, good excuse for why these institutions are not returning the objects
0: what is the hold why are we dragging our feet and why is this even a conversation to begin with like you know people people are angry and you know the, I think the only way that people will begin to feel better about this entire process is if those if the artifacts are, come back
3: In recent years, thanks to global movements like Black Lives Matter, the needle seems to be shifting, with new developments happening all of the time. As of this recording, Paris is giving back 26 pieces. Berlin is making a big move and negotiating the return of hundreds of Benin bronzes. And other museums across Europe are part of a group that will loan a significant number to a new museum in Nigeria. That museum is designed by the brilliant Ghanaian-British star-architect David Adjaye and is expected to be finished in 2023. But can you loan what's not really yours? Especially when other museums are finally giving these objects back. Institutions like the British Museum, that has the biggest collection in the world of Benin bronzes, must be really feeling the pressure now. So what's become of our Robin Hood of restitution? The man who filmed himself attempting to walk out of a famous museum in Paris with a beautiful African ceremonial object from their collection clasped to his chest. We left him in the hands of the French police. Well, since that day in June 2020, Wazulu's filmed himself reclaiming African artefacts from a few other museums in Europe, including the world-famous Louvre. He's been arrested, handed a deferred prison sentence and fined thousands of dollars.
1: I will not pay. They know that I won't pay. I will not pay because I cannot continue to enrich the criminals who brought us bereavement. C'est une pression. It is pressure. It is judicial political pressure to silence me.
3: I have a feeling it will not be easy to silence Mwazulu Diabanza or stop the ideas he represents. In fact, he's now widened his campaign to include a call to return the works of other continents and nations he describes as also robbed of their heritage.
4: I love it. I love his work. Here you have a young... African activist who is no longer satisfied with the status quo. And these calls will not end anytime soon.
3: So how do we answer those calls? Maybe restitution should mean more than returning what doesn't belong to the West along with giving back the historic objects of African artists, designers and craftsmen over the centuries, why not also send some of the West's most beloved art and artefacts? Perhaps a cherished Michelangelo sculpture, a couple of Edward Hopper paintings, or a handful of the exotic crowns which Europe's monarchs used to sport on their heads. Let's turn the tables... Is this going to solve hundreds of years of colonial injustice? Of course not.
4: You know, we can't underestimate the imaginative power to invent
3: excuses in defence of colonial loots. But if imaginative powers have been used to justify the looting and keeping of African artefacts for this long, to echo Chica, why not use imaginative powers to refashion this entire relationship? In the name of justice, this time... <laughs> episode of Art Bust, scandalous stories of the art world, we untangle the complex and tragic web of three families, generations connected by stolen art, Nazi Germany, and a mysterious man on a train.
0: They did a search on,
4: you know, his background and discovered that in a bureaucratic sense, he just didn't exist. Like, he had never had a job. He wasn't in the healthcare system, which everyone's registered in. He was just
2: a ghost.
3: This episode was senior produced by Debbie Pacheco and produced by me. Our associate producer is Alexis Green. Mix and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Consulting by Nanaba Duncan. Voice acting by Keith Rogers and Sam Trevor. Our executive producers are Kathleen Goldhar, Katrina Onstad, Stuart Cox, and Jago Lee. Our USG Audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Josh Block, Jennifer Sears, and Daniel Welsh. I'm your host, Ben Lewis. This is an Antica Productions podcast in collaboration with USG Audio, For more information, go to usgaudio.com.